Good morning. Welcome to Preston Hollow Presbyterian Church to this 11 a.m. worship hour. It is World Communion Sunday, and it is a joy to be in worship with all of you. If you are a visitor among us, I invite you to join us for fellowship in the atrium after worship. There are church members with bright yellow name tags who are eager and excited to welcome you and to invite you further into this family of faith. There are friendship pads in your aisles. If you have not already, please note your attendance and please note the names of those who are sitting around you so we can continue to deepen our family together. In those pads, you'll see there are connect cards and prayer cards. If, there, if you're looking for a way to connect deeper, you can mark those and we will reach out to you. If you have a prayer of joy or concern, it is an honor and a privilege as your pastor to join you in prayer throughout this week. On the back of your bulletin, you'll notice there are lots of announcements, and I want to highlight a few. I personally am so excited that we are bringing to Preston Hollow into this sanctuary New York Times bestselling author Kate Bowler. Kate Bowler is also a professor at Duke University, and she writes this incredible story and memoir of her own personal journey of faith of health and healing with such humor and such grace. I hope you'll join me in welcoming her on October 25th here at 7 p.m. in the sanctuary. There are tickets online for sale for only $10, so let's pack this house so we can welcome Kate. Next Sunday, I hope to see all the kangaroos here, our Austin College alums and friends and supporters. We have distinguished guests who will join us throughout the entire morning. President Stephen O'Day, his wife Cece, Chaplain John Williams in the incredible a cappella choir will be with us. You can join us at Sunday school, throughout worship, and for second Sunday lunch, so check out that information in your bulletin. And friends, tonight, rain or shine, and right now it looks like it's shining, we are going to have a barbecue. Invitations have already been sent out to all of our neighbors, so come join us for a barbecue. There will, may even be a bounce house in the atrium, so you don't want to miss that. And as I said earlier, today is World Communion Sunday. It is a Sunday where we, rec where we remember and celebrate that we stand with the entire ecumenical church as one under Christ. This morning, our sanctuary choir will be singing a stunning major work composed by Paul Talley. Through the blending of Gregorian chant, South African hymns, and the ever-favorite Amazing Grace, Freedom Trilogy paints for us Halley's vision for a world without borders. And he takes us on a journey across times and places where God's love is woven and holds us all together. So today, let us remember that we stand and worship with so many people all across this world. Family of God, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let us worship, holy God.
Family of God, let us call ourselves to worship. Please read responsibly, following in your bulletin. In worship, we remember that God so loves the world. In worship, the old and the young join hands. The mourning and the joyful share peace. The powerful and the powerless raise their voices together. In worship, God knits us together into the body of Christ. God, in our worship and in our daily lives. When we come together and confess, we recognize our shared humanity and we pray for peace over our brokenness. Together, let us pray the prayer of confession. God of the world, you are the creator and builder of everything. You created this earth as a home for all of your children. 
to share and inhabit with grace. We often forget that we belong to one another, that we are called to embody justice and seek peace. We fail to share our resources, and we do not recognize the far-reaching and global consequences of our actions. Help us to be better partners, seeking your will on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. By the abundance of God's love, you have been called and claimed by God. Friends, hear and proclaim the good news of the gospel. We are saved by grace through faith. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. Thanks be to God. Please join your hearts with mine in prayer. Let us pray. God of all creation, give us ears to hear what your story tells us in these words of scripture. Give us eyes to see your story in the faces of those around us, and give us faith enough to see that by your grace we might serve you until the end of our days. Amen. If you are worshiping with us for what is one of the first times this morning, another word of welcome to you. We are so glad that you are here. If you are a visitor in our midst, or if you haven't been here in a while, you need to know that we are picking up in a conversation about a new vision statement that the session has discerned for this body, a community of faith. That vision statement is trusting all belong to God, living like we belong to one another. Over the last four weeks, we have focused on the first half of that statement, trusting all belong to God. And this morning, we turn our attention to the second half, living like we belong to one another, exploring how that claim that all of us belong to God shapes the kind of community and relationships that God desires most for us. I have to admit, as I was thinking about you all and thinking about the text this week, how fitting it seemed that we would begin a conversation on living like we belong to one another on the weekend of a good old-fashioned football rivalry. Um, so depending on how you feel about the outcome of yesterday's game, you may or may not be reconsidering all belong to God. I will let you decide and work that out for yourself. We also continue that conversation, as Kathy said, on World Communion Sunday. We remember our unity and our connection to Christians around the world who celebrate this meal in Christ and give thanks for the connection that we have, brothers and sisters, as a part of God's human family. So thinking about those things, listen now from a word from the Lord from Genesis chapter 4. Now the man knew his wife Eve. 
And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. Now she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a tiller of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel, for his part, brought the firstlings of his flock, their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was angry, and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain said to his brother Abel, Let us go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother? Cain said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it will no longer yield to you its strength. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Today you have driven me away from the soil, and I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and anyone who meets me will kill me. The Lord said to him, Not so. Whoever kills Cain will suffer a sevenfold vengeance. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, so that no one would harm him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May God add insight and understanding into God's holy word this day. Throughout history, sibling rivalries have dotted the human landscape in all shapes and forms. I did a little research this week and came across just a couple. Cleopatra and Ptolemy, the Andrews sisters, George and Ira Gershwin, and of course, Emily, Charlotte, and Anne Bronte, but not to be left out, Venus and Serena Williams, or Eli and Peyton Manning. The truth is, no matter how far you go back in history, it really is hard to find a family with more than one child that doesn't know the trials of a good old-fashioned sibling rivalry in one form or another. Six months after her baby brother was born, my best friend announced at the age of three that she would like to learn to drive. Confused, her mother said, well, that's interesting, how come? She said, you know, it's been nice having a baby brother, but it's time for him to go back where he came from. I'd like to drive him there. <laughs> In my house, growing up, there was plenty of sibling rivalry to go around. There was a time when my parents put duct tape down the center seat of the Dodge minivan to prevent any arguing that would ensue if my sister or I would cross over and touch the other person's side. That worked for a bit until the complaint escalated from she's touching me to she's breathing on me. 
My mother said there really was not much she could do to divide the oxygen in the minivan. I did tell her that I was going to share that story with you all this morning, and she said, well, do you remember the schedule? And I said, no. She said, well, the competition between the two of you started driving me so crazy about who was to sit where in the car that I actually created a calendar for whose turn it was to sit in what seat. On Mondays, it was you in the back and your sister in the front and vice versa, and we traded days. We may or may not also have had a calendar to say table grace, among other things. But the truth is, sibling rivalry can also get serious. It can cut deep, it can last a lifetime. In his novel, East of Eden, John Steinbeck writes about the intertwined destinies of two families, the Trasks and the Hamiltons, whose members helplessly reenact the pain of sibling rivalry generation after generation after generation. And that's really the thing about sibling rivalry, whether sometimes funny and sometimes serious. That never-ending tale that's enacted by my family and your family across generations really isn't about one family in one particular time or place. It's really the story of every family. It's the story of the human family. And so the story is not something that happens once upon a time. It's a story that happens all the time. Because the story of siblings getting along together is our story. Theologian Walter Brueggemann calls it the brother problem. Perhaps better stated, the sibling problem. That is, of course, throughout history, the struggle of all of us. Brothers and sisters to live well together, to live in peace and harmony as part of God's human family. You don't have to have had a sibling. You simply have had to work with colleagues, or my favorite, collaborate on a project. Maybe even attempted to discern consensus on a church committee. I think all you have to do is watch three minutes of C-SPAN. That will tell you everything you need to know. (laughs) Rob Bell puts it lightly when he says, frankly, there is no cool, hip planet where all of the emotionally mature people gather together and get along in perfect harmony. Living together is hard. And that's exactly where the story meets us in Genesis 4. We find two of the first siblings, human siblings Cain and Abel, embroiled in conflict. The story tells us that Cain's a farmer and Abel is a shepherd, but that's really only where the distinctions stop between the two brothers. Both of the brothers work hard. Both bring their best. Both are faithful. Both turn in their commit card on time. (laughs) And yet, for some unknown reason, God looks favorably on Abel's offering and not on Cain's. We aren't told why. There have been lots of speculations and interpretive gymnastics by scholars to figure out what the reason might be. Some have wondered maybe it's because Cain brought grain and Abel brought meat. God clearly prefers barbecue, they say. There are some of you in this sanctuary who believe that that is true. But others have wondered on a more serious note, perhaps if the problem was not the gifts offered, but instead the giver. John Calvin guessed that maybe Cain's heart wasn't in the right place. Sure, Cain brought his offering to God, 
but inside he didn't really mean it. But the text doesn't say that. In the face of each wondering, each plausibility, the story, as is also the case often with life, is silent. And that's one of the things about the text that's hard to reconcile. We want there to be a reason, to be an explanation. We don't want to live in a world where love and life, gifts and tragedies are random in any way. We want life and faith and love and relationship to be explained by equations. Eat your vegetables, live forever. Follow the rules, do your homework, and everything will work out. And sometimes that story happens in light ways. And then sometimes that story happens in more serious ways. But the truth is that life doesn't treat us all the same. And when there is a difference, often explanations are silent. And so the story says God favors Abel's offering over Cain's. There's no reason given, no answer offered. Instead, the mystery of life and the freedom of God remain intact. It's what happens next that begins to propel the story forward in a new way. Angry and resentful about the cards that he's been dealt, Cain murders his brother. Sibling turns against fellow sibling, and it's the first moment of death in God's creation for the God who above all else wills life. But the story won't even dwell too long there. Instead, the story will quickly move beyond the moment of murder to the conversation that follows between God and Cain in which God asked Cain some very important questions. And as a friend of mine wisely always says, we should always sit up and pay attention when God is asking questions. God says to Cain, where is your brother? And Cain replies, I don't know. What am I, my brother's keeper? Am I supposed to keep track of him wherever he goes? To worry about his problems? I have enough problems of my own. Is he my responsibility? And of course what Cain is really saying is your God. Isn't that your responsibility? In the Bible, to be someone's keeper the Hebrew word for keeper is to support and aid and protect. It means to converse with someone day and night. To be someone's keeper is the kind of person that you could call at any time of day. It means to stay awake, like the watchman in the tower. To stay awake to somebody else's sufferings, their joys and their pains and their loves. It means to know something about someone beyond their name or where they went to school or what hometown they grew up in. It means to know someone in a way is to know who they are, their circumstances, to watch out for them, to care about what happens to them, to care about their thriving. And in part, Cain is right. He's not being very nice about it. 
but to be a keeper is God's job. God is our keeper, yours and mine. You'll hear it throughout scripture. Many of you may know by heart the beloved Psalm 121. It's one of my favorites. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day or by noon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. The Lord will keep your life. You're going in and you're coming out. God's relationship with us is not casual. Rather, God knows you and me intimately, our joys, our loves, our sufferings, our pains, and watches out for us. And it's tempting, I think, to leave that kind of care and responsibility, because it's a lot, only to God. The narrative that I sometimes want to tell myself that I think that America tells the rest of us is that true freedom means not having to answer or be responsible to anyone else. I'm, I'm free because I'm responsible to myself alone. But scripture really tells us a different kind of story. A story with two parts. Cain is right, God is our keeper. God watches out for us, cares for us, looks over us. But that's only half of the equation. God's question to Cain, where is your brother? Tells us that we are our siblings keeper too. That because all of us belong to God, that we too belong to one another. And we cannot separate our destinies from one another. In part because we are siblings of a human family. But for scripture, it's even more than that. That we are keepers of one another is rooted in the very being of God. Just a few chapters earlier at the beginning of Genesis, the text reads, Let us make humankind in our image to be like us. The plural has stopped a lot of scholars in their tracks. But perhaps one way of thinking about it is that the R in the statement refers back to the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Which means that if we're created in the image of God, and God is not an isolated being, but instead a relationship, that we too are called to live in God's image in such a way. We are God's image bearers in the world. Those who belong to God and who also have a responsibility as in God's inner being, to belong to one another. God's question to Cain, and what the text teaches us is this. Sin attempts to deny our fundamental interrelatedness, to tell us that we should care only about ourselves, about my church, my family, my kids, my tribe, my well-being alone. But God wants us to risk something greater. God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, divine relationship, creator, redeemer, sustainer, who has risked enough to cast God's lot with every single one of us. 
dares to invite us human beings to cast our lots with one another. It's both the deeply good news and also the challenging task. That the siblings for whom we must care for are not just those whom we are biologically related or even the people immediately around us, but the entirely large and sometimes unruly human family for which we are both burdened and blessed to descend. Each member of this family is our sibling. And none, therefore, are we free to abandon. This summer, I went to see the movie about Fred Rogers, lovingly known to most of us as Mr. Rogers. Perhaps some of you saw the movie, too. If you didn't, I would commend it to you. It's wonderful. And it's, of course, the beautiful telling of the life of that Presbyterian minister who each week entered the TV screens as well as the hearts of children and, I think, adults. By slipping off his coat and putting on that cardigan famously knitted by his mother, all the while singing that song, I bet most of us can sing it by heart. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? I've always wanted a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you please be my neighbor? For 912 episodes, Mr. Rogers invited us to be his neighbor. And no matter how old we get, no matter how old I get, that question still touches my heart. I think part of the reason, part of the magic of Mr. Rogers saying, won't you be my neighbor, is that he touches that place in us that recognizes in some fundamental way that we are all neighbors, all siblings, that we are all a part of God's human family and therefore called to keep one another. In an interview he gave about the show, Fred Rogers said, he said, we live in a world in which we need to learn to share responsibility. It's easy to say, not my child, not my community, not my world, not my problem. Then there are those who see human need and respond. And I consider those people my heroes. In the making of the film, Fred's wife said, don't make Fred out to be a saint. He's not a saint. He wasn't a saint. He's just an ordinary human being who believed in the struggle for grace, that all human beings belong to one another, that we would labor for grace. That's what we do. When the world tempts us to root for ourselves, to stick to our own kind, to tune out the cries of those around the world, that we labor like Fred Rogers for grace. Won't you be my neighbor? But the good news of the gospel is that God invites us to live with one another in hope and the sure conviction that though the story of human siblings often seems that it hasn't changed very much, that by the love and grace of God, 
it still can. All thanks be to God. Amen. Friends, having heard the word read and proclaimed, we will turn to the vision statement that was cast in 2009, and we will use it as our affirmation of faith this day. So will you please rise in mind or in spirit as we turn to these words. Please join me. We will be a church that worships joyfully and regularly in our Reformed tradition. Our worship will be creative, fresh, personal and relevant to the lives of people of all ages. Scripture and prayer will be central to all worship, engaging worshipers in experiences of growth in Christian faith and practice. Dear friends, please be seated. I don't know if you caught it, but Sarah jokingly alluded to the fact that we've now entered into commit season in the life of Preston Hollow Presbyterian Church. Commit is a time where we remind ourselves that the church is not just this building, but it is all of us. And each Sunday we are inviting and highlighting and celebrating folks who allow us to do that, who embody Christ's love into this world and help us to live into being the church together. This morning we are joined by Brian Spann. I'm excited for you guys to hear from him. Brian is one of our newest staff members, and he has been called into his role as the coordinator of our Epiphany program. So Brian, thank you for being here. Thank you. Could you tell us, especially for those who are not familiar with Epiphany, what is Epiphany ministry, and why is it that you have felt called to serve in this capacity in this church? Awesome. Well, Epiphany is our ministry to reach to, out to those in the community living with special needs. There are 258,000 families impacted uh, with special needs living in our zip code here at the church. That is a large number, but at Preston Hollow, we are committed um, through our mission to reach out to those in the community. Um, and so we do that through our Epiphany program. Um, and so our first hour from 9.30 to 10.30 every Sunday, we have a Bible study lesson um, for our, um, our adults that are here in the program. And then the, the rest of the afternoon, um, while their families go to lunch and get ready for the week, uh, we do um, different activities, working on life skills and uh, working on our ability to work with other people um, through gardening and arts and crafts, painting, uh, all kinds of different activities that we get to do together. So it is so great that we get to, as volunteers and as faith partners, get to join in with those in our community that have additional needs and to be able to be their keeper and to be their support and their um, encouragement. Uh, my life was impacted by someone doing that to me at a young age. Um, I was diagnosed with muscular dystrophy when I was five years old. And I grew up in the church, but when somebody took the time to, to go with our family, to help us heal, and to remind us of the love of Christ, um, that was when I found purpose and, and value in my life. Um, and so I'm thankful for, for those faith partners that walked with me um, to do that for me. So. Thank you, Brian. You're welcome. Um, 
when you were interviewing for this job, did you have any idea that doing the hokey pokey in Jubilee Hall would be part of your job description? <laughs> I had no idea. It's awesome here. Y'all have a great time, great fun all the time. I'm excited to get to we got to dance in our place. Well, thank you yeah. for sharing about your story, and thank you for committing your life to ministry in this way. I don't know about you guys, but for me, as the associate pastor for Mission and Outreach, it is an incredible joy and privilege to be able to serve here, to worship with all of you, and to live into what it means to be a family of God, to be one's keeper in our church, across our communities, and around the world. And so as we prepare to give of our time, our gifts, our tithes and offerings this morning, will you please join me in prayer? Gracious God, you create more than we could ever hope to return. You share more than we could ever hope to deserve. And yet we pray for you to accept these humble commitments, the gifts of time, talent, and resources we offer, that they may honor and glorify you in all creation, and may they empower us for the work of witness and service for the sake of justice and for the sake of peace, now and forever. Amen. Now with gratitude and compassion, let us be generous, for God has been generous with us.
friends, you may be seated. They will come from north and south and east and west to sit at table with our risen Lord, Scripture tells us. They will cross every dividing line that we have manufactured. They'll even cross duct tape lines in minivans to, to gather with our Savior at table. He is the host of this table. It's not a Presbyterian table. It doesn't belong to us. We don't get to determine who's invited and who's not. In fact, our call has been given to each and every one of us to tell you in all manner of words just how invited you are. There's a chair, a seat, just for you at this table today. All of you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, you can find rest here. There's a chair for you waiting. All of you who come to this table all the time and you know the ritual, you know what to do, your, your chair is still here. All of you who haven't been to this table in a very long time and you, and you wonder, I don't know, I got more questions and doubts than I do faith. There is room for you here. There's a chair with your name on it. So come wherever you are. Christ, our keeper, the keeper of us all, has made room for you at this table. So come, come. He's waiting to meet you here. Before we go to God in prayer, I want to highlight those prayers of joys and concerns in the back of our bulletins and to add to those the family of Eileen Rutherford and we pray for her recovery as she is hospitalized after a fall. Let us pray. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is truly right and our greatest joy to give you thanks and praise, O triune God, for even in your very being there is richness in diversity. For you are the God of all nations, and with the gifts of our languages, cultures, and traditions, we pray that the holy truths embodied by your Son, Jesus, bind us as one. For out of love for humanity, Christ entered into this life to live with us and to teach us how compassion is stronger than indifference, how greatness is a measure of one's service to others, and how unconditional love is the only power that can heal all that sin has broken. And now standing with your faithful across this entire world, you gather us in under your wings and you send us out to bring good news to a hurting world. And so, precious God, may our hearts break for children who go hungry and unhoused today. May our mouths speak words of comfort to those who live in fear. May our feet walk with those who carry the weight of suffering and pain. And may our hands dare reach out to those with whom we do not see eye to eye, for with you they are our kin. We pray especially for those in Indonesia and India for new life to emerge from death and destruction. We pray for our ministry partners in Nicaragua that they may know peace and safety. We pray for our church in Malawi that they may lead with wisdom and in faith. Gracious God, 
pour out your Holy Spirit upon us and upon these, your gifts of bread and wine, that the bread we break together and the cup we share may bind us in the communion of your body and blood. For your Son came for us, died for us, rose for us, he prays even for us, and he taught us first to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Among friends and gathered around a table, Jesus took bread, and after giving thanks to God, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, and he said, Take, eat, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the sign of the new covenant, sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. For each time we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the saving death of our risen Lord until he comes again in glory. And he is coming. So friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. This morning we will receive communion by remaining seated in the pews. As the tray of bread comes passed down your pew, you are invited to take a piece and to partake of it as you are ready. As the tray with the cup comes down your pew, you are invited to partake it and hold it. We will take of the cup together as a sign of our unity in Christ. Friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. All is ready.
Let us share in the cup together. Let us pray. Gracious and merciful God, we offer our thanks for the gift of this feast. At this shared table, may we be united as children of your promise, children of your word, dying and made new again and sent boldly together into this world as servants of your peace. Amen. As you go forth from this place, remember that you are one part of a very large human family, brothers and sisters together in Christ. We invite you following worship this morning to write the name on the chalkboard of someone who has shown care and keeping for you beyond your immediate family. As you go forth from this place, go out with compassion and justice in your heart. Give voice to the silent, give strength to the weak. Hear one another, see one another, love one another. It's all that easy. And it's all that hard. And may the love of God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the communion of the Holy Spirit go with you this day and always. Go in peace. Amen. <laughs> 